yeah, we're continuing our, our series um, in these uh, in these few weeks in the in the Psalms, basically just taking each Psalm as as it comes. Um, so we've uh, looked at Psalm 13 and 14 so far. This evening we land in Psalm uh, 15, and it's a short Psalm, and yet I wonder how it leaves you uh, feeling. I wonder if it leaves you feeling uh, really encouraged and kind of positive and eager and excited, or whether it leaves you actually feeling slightly slightly uncomfortable. Uh, I'm not sure where, where you land. And, and for those who've known me for a number of years, me asking anybody how they feel about anything uh, would, you know, if you know my friends, they would look at me and just sort of laugh. Um, for a very long time, if you'd have asked me, there's only three feelings that I feel. Happy, hungry, and tired. Uh, gradually, through age, uh, through, uh, through marriage especially, I've, I've discovered that there are some other emotions, and I, I do feel them, and I'm, I'm, I'm slowly growing in that department. Um, but I wonder as we, we get to Psalm 15, um, whether we feel kind of... It feels a bit distant and disconnected from our life. Look at verse 1. The question of David, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? I wonder if it it doesn't really feel like a question we're asking. Does it? Well, how about how the psalm ends at the end of um, verse 5? Where it talks about whoever does these things uh, will never be shaken. And yet we look around our own lives and we're very aware that there are times there are there are times when we're we're wobbling. And then there are the times when it feels like our life is turned upside down and everything's flipped on its head. And we go, hmm. It doesn't feel like I'm never shaken. Or how about uh, when the, the sort of bulk of the psalm, this character list that we get in verses at two to five. And and maybe it's easy to read those verses and feel kind of discouraged because, I don't know about you, I would love these things to be true of me more and more and more and more. And at times there's perhaps glimpses of these things in my life, probably your life too. But I'm also very aware of the times where it's not true. But it might be this evening that as Maggie read those verses, actually you were sitting there feeling excited and eager and encouraged. And if that's you, I need to spend some time with you. Because you are thinking in the right direction. I really do think you're onto something with Psalm 15. Because I don't think this psalm is given to us by God. Uh, his word to us. His word to his people down through history. Uh, his word that was on the lips of Jesus. Jesus would have uh, sung and said this psalm. I don't, I don't think it's designed to leave us feeling disconnected and distant and discouraged. In fact, I hope this evening that, that Psalm 15 will, will do two things for us. It will help us to realize a desire for us to develop. And it will, secondly, uh, show us a life for us to grow into. A desire to develop and a life to grow into. Uh, So first of all, this desire uh, to develop. At at first glance, the two questions the psalm starts with in verse 1. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? It sounds, if you've been in church life for a long time, worrying lo- worryingly like a church camping trip up a wet Welsh hillside. Talk of tents and mountains. And this is the moment where we need to realise that, that the world that is being described by the psalmist isn't the world we're living in today as New Testament people of God. And actually, we need to be really careful that, 
that we read this psalm and we hear this psalm it was as it was originally written, as it was originally heard. And this language, this reference to tents, now, if we know our Old Testaments a bit, should immediately be ringing a bell of tabernacle. And I know at Living Hope, I think um, Roger Smith, if you, if you know Roger, uh, has built a, a replica of the tabernacle. And you might be sitting there going, what, what's a tabernacle? Well, it's a, a tent like no other. A, a tent like you will never find on any campsites in the world. It was a tent that God commissioned and God's people built uh, after they'd been rescued out of Egypt uh, and formed as God's people. It, it was a tent because it was to be taken up and moved as God's people moved, as they made their journey to the promised land. It was the place where God said, this is, this is my presence among you. I will be in this tent. This is how you will be marked out as my people. I will be with you. And as God's people entered into uh, the promised land, the focus of their worship uh, began to, uh, to not be um, uh, wherever the tent was, moving around. It, it became the hill of Jerusalem, where one day the, the tent under David was moved to. Uh, a hill which at one stage was just a farm building. But one day under Solomon became the great temple. That the focus and the center of the worshipping life of, of God's people. Why? Because that's where God's presence was. That's where God himself dwelt amongst his people. So David's concern in verse 1 isn't to do with where do I go to uh, to worship God. It's to do with the fact that people can worship and connect with God. It's a question of connecting with the living God. Knowing that he was living amongst his people. And asking a question of who can be included in that. Who can be God's people? Who's included? I guess in our language, if we were to take it away from uh, the Old Testament people of God, in, in our language, uh, David's questions in verse 1 is asking, what do the people of God look like? Who gets to enjoy God's presence in their life? And as we realize that, we discover that David's questions reveal a desire in his heart, a desire for for us as God's people today to be developing. A desire, I think, that is actually built into every single human life, but is often misdirected. Because we go right back to the start of the Bible. We find Adam and Eve, don't we? We, we find them enjoying God's presence. It's a language of, of walking with the Lord in the cool of the day. Where do they do it? They do it, we're told, in the Garden of Eden. We're given a few details about the Garden of Eden. Uh, one of which is that there are four rivers that flow out from the garden. For a river to flow, what does that tell you about the Garden of Eden? It's on a mountain. It's a mountain. God's presence and mountain seems to go together. It's just an interesting observation. And, and the temple is on a mountain. And when we look at the new creation, it talks about being a mountain. Uh, so it's a very kind of biblical um, connection. And yet we know the story. Uh, humanity's rebellion against God. Our sin means, means we're separated from God's presence. We're sent away from God's presence to wander. And it means that I think every human longing for purpose and meaning and identity, for that sense of home, for that sense of belonging, for things to be different, for things to be better, 
Our desire for truth and beauty and goodness and joy and friendship and intimacy, that sense that there must be more to life than this, is ultimately a longing for the presence of God himself. Not this concept of God's presence being like a thing that we can take off the shelf and put into a carrier bag and and take with us. To talk about the presence of God is to talk about a relationship with God himself. To know him. And to be known by him. To love him because he loves us. And on Father's Day, ultimately to know God as our Father. You maybe uh, know the famous line from Augustine, the, uh, the African bishop in the early church. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Or it's what C.S. Lewis called the inconsolable longing in the human heart for what we know not what. And when we found it, C.S. Lewis says, turns out it's not that. We think we found it, we think we got hold of what our hearts are longing for, it turns out it's not that. Ultimately, the question uh, David is asking in verse 1 uh, It's a question of who can be in God's presence. Who can know the living God truly? Who can be known by the living God truly? And I guess ultimately, and this is perhaps where we feel discouraged, we hear that question and we go, well, well, it's not me. Or we read through that list of character traits, we go, well, it's not really me. Because even when God's presence was with his people in the tent, in the temple, there was always a sense of you can come near, but not too close. It's a bit like when you go and uh, visit a National Trust property uh, and you go through the, uh, the rooms of the ancient things. Uh, you can look, can't you? But you can't come close because there's the velvet rope. I don't know what happens if you go under them. Great alarms or, I don't know, volunteers come chasing after you. Uh, my daughter tries to find out every time we go to one of those, uh, but we've not found out yet. But the same was true, that great curtain in the temple. You can come near, but not too near. Who can can answer this question then? Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? This is where another psalm really helps us. And perhaps you just want to flick back to it. It's it's Psalm 2. It's only a couple of pages back. Psalm chapter 2. I just want to draw your attention to verse 6. Uh, where God's voice uh, announces and declares, you see, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. You see, there is somebody there. There is somebody who can be there, who can live there and dwell there. The one God has installed as his king. The one the New Testament fleshes out as being Jesus Christ himself. What does Jesus do? Well, Jesus is the one who who comes from his heavenly home, who comes from the very presence of God the Father himself to come and find us and to close this gap that is there between us and God that none of us can cross, none of us can fill, to close it completely and eternally. God through Jesus bridges that gap through his death on the cross for our sin in our place. He makes it possible for you and I right now to be seated in the presence of the Father. If you're a Christian this evening, isn't that a great thought? We're sitting, we're sitting in a is it medieval 
We're sitting in an old building somewhere in Leicestershire. And at the same time, we're sitting in the presence of God the Father because Jesus is there and we're joined to him. Isn't that amazing? And God's presence is in each one of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, through his spirit right now. And there is a promise that that presence of God will be experienced by us in an even deeper, greater, fuller way to come. We read in Revelation uh, chapter 21, you know, those famous verses of you know, seeing the, uh, the Jerusalem coming down dressed as a beautiful bride uh, for a bridegroom, a place where you know, God will wipe away every tear. And just after those verses, it, it says that John is carried away in the spirit to a mountain. It's another mountain, great and high. And how he showed the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The picture of the new creation is this city on a hill. God's full presence forever. The presence of God is the desire to be developed. That's what these questions, I think, in Psalm 15 ask of us. Is that, this evening, your desire? A desire to develop in your life. A longing for God himself. A longing for his presence more and more in your life. That hope of his presence forever. Because this is the place where we won't be shaken from. Our lives might wobble. Our lives might be turned upside down on their heads. And yet, your place in God's presence cannot be taken away by any circumstance, any situation. And at this point you go, Tom, you spent ages on one verse. I know it's a short psalm. But I think spending time on these questions is, is really important for us to, to see that this is the, the desire that David is pouring out, longing for God's people to be desiring, to be in God's presence, because it unlocks, I think, the door to the rest of this psalm. We don't see, therefore, at this character list in the following verses as simply being like the job description that you're given when you're applying for a job, which you go... Yeah, there's no chance I meet those. Or you might go, yeah, maybe worth a chance. Or you might very smugly go, yeah, I've got that nailed. Because if it is, we either, we either end up disappointed or we kind of are desperately hoping or we end up overconfident. And I don't think those are the posture, postures for any Christian. I don't think that's how Jesus wants us to be living. But if we begin to see that this description in verses 2 to 5 of Psalm 15 is actually a description of the one who is already dwelling on the, hill, on the holy mountain of the Lord, the one who's been installed as king. If we discover this is a description of Jesus, suddenly we realize things change. This is a description of Jesus. This is a description of his life. Of his character. Now it's not wrong to assume we're involved in some way. Remember, if you belong to Jesus, you are joined to him. Because he is in the presence of his father, so we get to enjoy the father's presence in our lives. And at the same time, when you become a Christian, the Bible famously says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. 
And it means all that is true of Jesus gets counted as being true for me. And would you believe it? For you. This character list is not a job description for a position you're applying for. This character list is not an entrance exam to pass. This character description is a life to grow into. You see, verses uh, 2 to 5 of Psalm 15 are a bit like me wearing this jacket. You probably can tell this jacket doesn't belong to me. It's kind of swamping me, isn't it? It actually belongs to Russ. Thank you, Julie, for bringing it along. Uh, if I was quite a bit younger, more years than I'd like to admit, and you saw me maybe walking to school in something like this, what would go through your mind? He'll grow into it. Psalm 15. You see that characteristics? Look at me and go, he'll grow into it. I look at you. You'll grow into it. Or maybe I should say you are growing into it. Because at this stage of life, I am not going to be growing and filling this out. Well, certainly not in this direction. But I am going to keep growing into the character of Jesus. And so are you. That is the, the big part of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and, and something we're called to, to partner with the Spirit, to be working towards at the same time, to be pulling in the same direction as the Holy Spirit, to be walking in step with the Holy Spirit. And so it's worth, uh, just as we finish, just looking at some of these characteristics uh, that are painted for us of Jesus and of what we're growing into, what you and I are growing into. Uh, different people uh, divide the characteristics up into all sorts of different numbers of characteristics. There's not a right or wrong way of doing that, I don't think. I've just got five for us uh, this evening. Five sets of characteristics. It's not a complete description of life, uh, but it's a pretty broad and a comprehensive description. Some major features. First one, verse two. Living wholeheartedly. You see, it says... The one whose way of life is blameless. Now, we immediately think, oh, they've done nothing wrong. They're blameless, without blame. But actually, the word that stands behind that much more talks about being whole and complete. It's a, lot, a wholehearted life, complete lives. Lives where every part of your life adds up. What goes on on the outside matches what's going on on the inside. Do you see that? Who does what is righteous there's good. We do good on the outside. Who speaks the truth from their heart? There's goodness on the inside. What you see on the outside is matched by what is on the inside. What is seen by others is the same as what goes on when the doors and curtains are closed. There's a consistency to your life, especially, can I add, when you're under pressure. Isn't it when we're squashed and squeezed, when we feel under pressure, that, that sort of amplifies that the sin in our lives? I always remember leading on a, a summer camp with young people, and one of the leaders would always pray every day, every year, um, during our camp meetings, Lord, in our tiredness, and boy, did we get tired leading that youth camp. Help us not to sin. Because when we're under pressure, that's when, that's when it comes out, isn't it? That's what we're really like pops out. 
Then verse 3, uh, maybe the second sort of set of characteristics is, is speaking carefully. In my experience, when somebody becomes a Christian, uh, there tends to be three areas of life that are the slowest to be converted. First is your purse or your wallet. It takes a long time for that to, you know, for your faith in Jesus to really start making a difference to how you use money, how you spend money, how you give money. Uh, the second thing is your right foot when you drive a car on the whole. And the third one, your speech. Sometimes you, you, you see that people suddenly sw- stop swearing or something like that. But, but actually, to start speaking carefully as this psalm talks takes time. Verse 3, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others. See, our speech reveals what's going on in our hearts. Jesus said that, didn't he? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So we ask ourselves, are our words about other people when they're not there? Are they mocking? Are they about spreading stories? And as Christians, we can do this very subtly. Oh, you really need to pray for this person because suddenly you're spreading a story rather than just saying, can you pray for that person? Or are we honoring people when they're not there? Or when they are there, are we encouraging them with our words? So living wholeheartedly, speaking carefully, we're clear about character. So the second, uh, first half, sorry, verse four. Uh, to be a person who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord. What does it mean to despise a vile person? Uh, does that mean turning our backs on them, being horrible to somebody who we don't like? He seems to live life according to very different moral principles to us. Well, verse 3 is always already highlighted that we're not to do any wrong to a neighbor. But instead, I think this half of the verse is is telling us about standing up for what God likes and God's ways. And it's more and more difficult because we're in a culture where if you hit the hot topics, uh, when we say we disagree with you, it is heard as I completely reject you. And so we have to navigate this very carefully to somehow model something of Jesus who had this most radically inclusive welcome, but it came with some very exclusive claims about himself and about life following him. And I think this verse covers covers who we choose to be our role models in our life, whatever age we're at. Those who we look at and go, when I grow up, I want to be like that. Even if you are in your 80s, you probably still do it. I want to be more like you. Are we choosing somebody who follows after Christ? Or just somebody who seems to be winning at life? Do we celebrate where we see Jesus at work in people's lives? Are we raising concerns when we see in the lives of Christians things that are not right? Um, You might notice we've got some posters around church with um, yellow bits on. There's one on that pillar there. There's one over on the notice board there, and it, and it says, um, need to talk, I think. I'm just going to read, read to you what it says underneath. It says, are you unhappy, or have you seen or heard something about a child or an adult that concerns you? Don't stay silent. Come and talk to us. We're discovering in the life of, of, of not this church particularly, but the church broadly, that Christian leaders sometimes can get away with a heck of a lot because they're in a position of power or influence, or they seem particularly gifted, and so people stay quiet. 
assuming ungodly behavior therefore can be excused. It can't. Living wholeheartedly, speaking uh, carefully, uh, clear on character. Second half of verse 4, speaking faithfully. See, the, the theme of words pops up again. I'm more and more convinced we need to teach much more about this in the life of of churches. Our words are so important. Are we true to what we say? Are we reliable? Or do we just say what we think other people want to hear in that moment? Does our yes mean yes, our no mean no? And notice how it says sometimes we have to keep our word even when it hurts, even when it's not easy, when it's not simple, or even when it feels like this is something that is not going to give me life. When it comes to ordering something in a restaurant, I am the king of changing my mind at the last minute. I will have decided what I'm having on the menu. The waiter or the waitress comes, kind of take your order, and I've changed like that. It's fine in that setting. But when we're seeking to build trust between one another, to be constantly changing our minds, it means there's no trust. Can you be trusted? Living wholeheartedly. Uh, speaking carefully, clear on character, speaking faithfully. Uh, and then finally, I think uh, verse 5 is, I think it's speaking about something, something about contentment, being contented with what you've got. Uh, do you see that? Uh, who lends money to the poor, so is generous to those in need, without interest, without squeezing the person who has less, giving without an expectation of getting back. Who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Who says there is something more important than me getting more. And that is justice. There being a contentment with what God has given us. To be marked out by generosity and not greed. You see, when we read this, these verses simply and primarily about us, we're either left discouraged Desperately hoping we're good enough, or perhaps rather arrogantly thinking, yeah, I'm fine. And that is not the posture for any Christian. Instead, these verses are like this jacket. We are growing into them. You and I are growing into these verses. And how do we do it? As we desire and delight in God's presence more and more in our lives.